You know why I'm so passionate about Music to Code By? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you, who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than four bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only three bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1338, with guest Aaron Stannard. Recorded Friday, August 19th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Richard Campbell. Richard Campbell. Are you the Richard Campbell that just took an Arctic expedition? Why, yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> I can't believe... How many people get to do this in their lives? You and your friends, and some of our listeners know who these people are, you hopped on a, a big ice crusher and went through the Arctic to see the polar bears before they're all we dead? We were actually on the smallest ship certified to do it commercially is a 12 berth trawler built in 1943 for the Swedish government. Uh, I've been privately owned for the past few years. It is not an ice breaker per se, but it has what they call an ice reinforced hull. Okay. And so uh, and it's got kind of a funny shape to it, which makes it wallow a bit in rough seas, hmm. but it can tolerate. Basically they run it up on the ice and then they break through that ice and then they keep going. Wow. Uh, up to about three feet thick. Once the ice was thicker than that, we couldn't go any further. Did you literally get stuck in the ice or not stuck? No, but no, stopped we never. By? We, they, there were points where we hit the ice where we, we couldn't break it, and then we, you know, more or less just slide off and go yeah. back. But we got as far as uh, eighty-one point five degrees north. Wow! So we were uh, we were what eight hundred kilometers from the North Pole and uh, and well above any land at all. So there's yeah. a point where you realize. It looks like ground, but it's all ice all around you as far as you can see. And uh, we got to call out your 360-degree camera toy that uh, I think you got for your birthday, right? Uh, no, no, no. This was literally, I bought this on a whim just before we left for the trip because, look, I, we, I was going with some serious OCD folks, many of which <laughs> you know, people like Scott Stanfield and Kim Tripp and yeah. Paul Randall, yeah. who have you know, significant camera rigs, right? Yes. Like, I could have this camera set up, or I could buy a sports car, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I thought, why am I going to take pictures at all? Like, there's no point. These people are, you know, pushing professional mm. with the kind of gear they got. And then I ran into that, that little Ricoh Theta S. And w what excites me about that camera is, yeah, it takes these 360 pictures. It's basically two fisheye lenses on either side of what looks like a candy bar basically right 
And, uh, but it allows you, it, you know, the picture, what's, what I loved about this picture, my favorite ones, right? Is like a picture of the ice with a polar bear on it. And then a picture of all of us going, holy cow, that's a polar bear. And when you post these pictures, you can essentially use the mouse to, to move the camera in, f- in all directions. I mean, there isn't any, there isn't any visible area that is not in the picture except for your hand, which if you're holding it, it's really weird to point the camera down and see what looks like half a hand. <laughs> or yeah, the, or the giant thumb of doom, right? <laughs> Big thumb. Yeah. So I, I, I actually started putting the camera on a timer and then putting it on a selfie stick. Yeah, I saw that. Just to get it away from us. So you yeah. get a little more... You know, no more giant faces either. Yeah, um, and, the, and what's great is that and people, we really, we got to post these pictures. There's just amazing pictures of polar bears on ice flows looking like, where do I go? It's mm-hmm. sad and Although amazing. Those, those polar bears were fat and happy. There was a point where, and I couldn't take this picture with the 360 just because they're too far away. We saw eight polar bears at the same time, but they were all separated from each other by a kilometer or two. The only thing that's dangerous to a polar bear in the high ice are other polar bears. So they just avoid each other. Huh. But they, that's where the food is. You know, the, the problem for polar bears is if you're on the ice cap, you're well fed, hmm. but you have to breed, make babies on land. And because the ice cap has shrunk so much, it doesn't touch land anymore. Oh, I see. So that's the essential conflict. The main breeding area in the Svalbard Islands where we were in, in Hong Island Used to, you know, 20 years ago, there were several hundred denning mothers on that island. Now it's like three. Wow. Well, Uncle Richard, we could hear your stories of the Arctic expedition all day, but and, and I hope <laughs> that you do blog it and uh, let us know about it. Yeah, maybe it might be even geek out worthy. I don't know. I'll have to think about it and yeah. figure out what notes we could do with it. Yep. All right. But now it's my turn. Roll the music because I got something fun for you. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? So David Sorensen sent in this uh, little fun romp through reality. It's a game. It's an MMO strategy sandbox game for programmers. Hmm. And it's at Screeps.com. It's called Screeps, S-C-R-E-E-P-S. The world's first MMO strategy sandbox game for programmers. You can watch a video. You can watch a live demo. You can view it on Steam. So it's about scripting your creeps. <laughs> no, <laughs> no point in clicking any longer. You write real JavaScript, which controls your units autonomously, anytime, everywhere, even while you're offline. It's a true strategy game. You get units, base, mining resources, territory control, economy, manufacturing, transporting, logistics, reconnaissance, all the attributes of a real strategy game, which you will have to program. There's no shards, game realms, and session matchups. Units of all players coexist in the same real-time persistent world and obey the same rules. So your success depends on your intelligence rather than your wasted time, which is a little bit refreshing, isn't it? The better your scripts, the better your game. Irrespective of the time played, your creeps will mine, build, defend, and conquer as you just work, sleep, or walk your dog. Because, of course, it's a programming game. So the whole point is program it so that it's doing work for you. Of course. And it's brilliant. I haven't played it myself, but I did watch the demo, and it looks just utterly fun. 
That's cool. Yeah. Screeps. Who's talking to us, Richard? That's an excellent question. <laughs> Grabbed a comment off of show 1134, the one we did with one Aaron Standard, where we talked about ACA.net version two. And that's back in May of 2015. By the way, huge conversations that went on in that show. Yeah. And, uh, and Aaron jumped in and chatted with a bunch of folks along the way as well. So uh, it was really interesting to see the excitement around ACA. Mm. This particular comment, now about a year old, is from Rickard Nilsson, who said, thank you for a great show. To find out more, I completed the ACA.net bootcamp, and I totally see how the actor model can change the way we develop applications. My only concern is that in most examples, the actor gets its workload and runs off to a desert island with an umbrella drink. (laughs) In my world of developing line of business applications, separating tasks and handling messages is easy, but sharing data is hard. I wish we could see more examples of how the actor model can simplify the management of complex transactions and locks in relational databases. On the other hand, storing state in SQL in many situations is not the best option. Mm. Why not invite the guys from Event Store to continue discussion on how to build event-sourced applications? Hmm. Sounds like a great idea. We should do that. We should. But not today. Today no. we talk more ACA. It's all hot cut today. So, Rickard, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media. Because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We feed him to our creeps. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's introduce again Aaron Stannard. He's the CEO now and co-founder of Petabridge, where he makes distributed programming for .NET developers easy by creating application programming frameworks such as Akka.net and Helios. Prior to Petabridge, Aaron founded Marked Up Analytics, a real-time in-app marketing and analytics service used by over a 1,000 developers. He's also worked at Microsoft as a startup developer evangelist. Welcome back to the show, Aaron. Thanks for having me back, guys. Really appreciate it. Let's start with, uh, we have talked about the actor model. We've talked about Akka.net, obviously, with you. And we immediately get the question, I do anyway, What's the difference between, say, ACA.NET and Orleans, Microsoft Orleans, which is also an actor model framework used in, uh, yeah, used in um, he, uh, Halo? You know, those guys need to get a new case study. They've been touting that for like three or four years now. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, no, I met, so I met Sergey and the, uh, the founder of Orleans at uh, NDC Sydney a couple weeks ago and mm-hmm. had a chance to attend his talk and listen to some of his, um, some of his material. And, you know, I've, I've looked at Orleans and I kicked the tires on it. And I would say that the fundamental difference between the two frameworks is really in their philosophies for how they're designed. So Orleans is sort of your typical Microsoft-y sort of approach to solving a problem, which is Microsoft will do all the hard thinking for you. Right. And you just build your stuff on top of it and it'll just work. Right. And as long as you don't run into a situation where the thing doesn't deploy properly or it breaks down and you don't understand why, you'll be fine. Yeah. Um, Akka, on the other hand, is sort of designed to be a very much a bottom-up sort of framework yeah. where the core, the actual core Akka NuGet package you install is just for running actors locally. It has, doesn't do anything on the network. Uh, it's designed to basically just give you actors a sort of a fundamental unit of concurrency and programming inside your application. 
So we have people who've actually developed, you know, Windows Forms, uh, WPF, and actually Xamarin applications hmm. that are running on iOS and Android using just the core Aka module for all that sort of stuff. So it's just uh, a way to turn an object into an actor, basically. Yeah, it's if you want to have, it, it'd be kind of like if you wanted to use reactive extensions inside an application, you could do that, or you could use actors. So it's another type of reactive programming that can work sort of locally like that. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, isn't Orleans in Azure only? You know, they are working on trying to get a story for other cloud providers and other on-prem stuff. But mm. really, they designed the thing to be very specific for Windows Azure. And in particular, the way they store a lot of state about their cluster and their network is all dependent on things like Azure table storage. And I think they're, they've, they have a pluggable system where you can support all sorts of different providers, but yeah. essentially they outsource a lot of the hard work needed to maintain their sort of, uh, highly available actor systems over the network to providers like Azure Table Storage, Zookeeper, that sort of thing. Okay. All right. Good. Yeah. So let's talk about the new version 1.1. Yeah. yeah um, what's new? So the biggest things that came out of 1.1, uh, I'd say the, the really ma major sort of headline for 1.1 was that Aka.cluster, which is the module in Aka.net for doing highly available distributed systems, mm -hmm. is finally out of beta after more than two years of development on it. Wow. So it's fully production certified now. It is, uh, been, it's been used in production by some users for over a year and a half already wow. during the beta period. Uh, but it's basically passed all of its health checks and we have a really extensive suite of what are called multi node tests. These are essentially distributed unit tests where we simulate an entire network of machines using individual processes and we can do things like introduce latency between them or, uh, suddenly, we can do something like make one socket half closed so it, it can receive messages wow. but not send any back. Nice. And we can use that to test all these different varieties of sort of failure scenarios. And we really wanted to make sure before we signed off on the module and said that it was you know, okay for production use that it passed all those checks, and it does now. And so it's uh, totally out of beta. It's a full stable module, and it's ready for production use. I'm in the middle of rewriting Petabridge's e-commerce system to run on top of it. Great. Uh, we've been using, we've been using off the shelf stuff for a long time and now we're going to in-house it a little bit. And so uh, right. I want to be along for the ride with our users. So I'm betting on Akadot cluster. So I got a question for you. You mentioned the socket half closed and, you know, first sending and not receiving or the other way around. Um, I, I take it you're using sockets. Are you using TCP sockets, UDP, any of your, is it the programmer's choice? The transport layer for Aka.net is pluggable. You can go ahead and provide any sort of transport you want, although we, we generally uh, depend on the IP protocol for a bunch of our addressing guarantees. But yeah, the default transport and the one that 99.99% of all of our users use is a TCP transport. Got it. Um, it simplifies so many things. And the most important thing it simplifies is that in order for two actors to remotely communicate with each other over the network and still have all of their sort of location transparency and message ordering guarantees met, it means that the order in which messages are written to the transport has to be preserved over the wire. And right. TCP does that automatically. Yeah, UDP, so, you get a little more performance, but you could completely lose packets. 
Yeah, UDP, you have that issue where they have the ordering and packet loss is a potential issue. Uh, but beyond that, the other thing that people sometimes forget about UDP is that you can have an arbitrarily large datagram. Uh, the actual network hardware itself might restrict the size of it to 65K or less, uh, depending on sort of the age of the different switches and everything involved. Mm. So there can be some some issues caused by that sort of issue, too, whereas TCP is better about being able to automatically chop up the messages you're writing into smaller packets and sequencing yeah. them in a way where they can just be recombined on the other end. Yep. Yeah. My Old experience school. with folks working in UDP has been they start building recovery mechanisms and packet manipulators and so forth. After a while, you're like, dude, didn't you just make TCP? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, um, you know, there's some approaches out there. Speaking of just sort of the socket stuff that we've been looking at maybe for ACA.NET's transport in the future. So on the, on the ACA JVM project, the, the original one that's written in Scala, they're looking at using Aeron, which is a really high speed uh, messaging system uh, that uses essentially multiplexed UDP under the hood uh, to transmit all of its messages. And they do have some of those uh, reliability guarantees and everything else built into it. And I don't fully understand how their design works under the hood, but they're yeah. able to achieve some pretty amazing uh, speed using that. We used to. And I like that you refer to it as ACA for the JVM because it's not necessarily for Java anymore. No, I would say the majority. Uh, well, actually, I, I I would say just from the outside, looking at sort of all the Stack Overflow posts and everything else, it certainly seems like Akka commands a fairly Scala heavy audience. Mm -hmm. uh, even though they do support Java too, Java is kind of like uh, the VB.NET of the uh, of the Akka on the JVM <laughs> sort of <laughs> ecosystem. Um, That's not right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't I don't mean to be too harsh on on either one of those communities. Um but uh the the there could also be a silent majority thing going on there like if you go ahead and take a look at the amount of chatter from F# -sharp users in .net versus how many mm -hmm. people are actually using it you can see that there's definitely like a sort of uh, there's a much more sort of like vocal minority of users uh, who yeah. talk about it a lot and make a lot of noise than there are people actually you know, proportion using it proportional to something like C-sharp. I so. mean, the argument is that the minorities make more noise because they need to. The majority yeah. is busy, you know, just building stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's that idea of what dark matter developers. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, guys are yeah. just they're, they're working in the mainstream tools. All the document, you know, the best documentation is available for them. Best helps available for them, so they they really don't have to talk a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's um, you know, there's so I've attended a couple of conferences so far this summer, and and .dot mm -hmm. net fringe is one of my absolute favorites. So I attended oh, that Portland. again this year, and they had Don Syme speaking and a whole bunch of other major members of the F Sharp community, and you know, while those technologies are amazing and it's something that i'm working on learning is i i feel like uh f sharp and functional programming is sort of a natural progression in any dotnet developer's career after they do something like aka.net because you sort of learn a lot of the functional programming concepts like pattern matching and that sort of stuff uh, when you're working with actors right um but i keep harkening back to this idea it's like well you shouldn't necessarily use a tool because it's, and I'm putting this in finger quotes, even though you can't see me, because it's somehow better or the next thing. You should just stick with what is yeah. really productive for you and right. not worry about what Hacker News thinks about your technology stack. <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> Don't be a yeah. sheep.
<laughs> That'd be bad. <laughs> I'm going to rewrite my app using Elixir, Go, Closure. It's like, wait, aren't those three different application programming languages? Why do you need yeah. all of them? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, these were yeah. the same guys who were sure they could build a better garbage collector back to 2002, right? <laughs> now, you're, now you're talking about Chris Sells. Uh, well, I think he did build a better garbage collector, but that's a different issue. Yeah, he, he always wanted reference counting in the .NET framework. <laughs> well, we just talked to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's, uh, what are some of your case uh, studies, if you want to call them that, that uh, people are using Akka for? Obviously, games is the, the one that comes to mind. You know, I just saw, so I've got my little Slack window open here, that someone just published a blog post a couple of hours ago talking about building a multiplayer game with Akka.remote. And I haven't had a chance to read that yet, but I'll send that over. Okay. Uh, we do know that we've got some folks who are doing yeah multiplayer gaming with Akka.net. There were some Unity developers uh, really early on who took interest in it, who were building mobile games. And they wanted the ability to build like... Kind of think of it like battle.net-esque behavior where you have rooms uh, where people can gather to go ahead and play a game together. They have chat going back and forth and you have to have the actors disseminate messages about what each player is doing. Akka is really great for that uh, as sort of a, a server for running a, a multiplayer game. So that's one sort of set of case studies. Some of the ones that we've published since uh, we spoke last on, uh, on .NET Rocks. We have a company here in LA uh, that does transit tracking for all of the public transit fleets in like 30 different cities in the United States. Mm. And they're using Akka.net and a bunch of interesting places. So for one, they actually have their whole server side environment. They have a, a little like listener that collects data from all the buses. They, these buses have modems in it that go, that are as old as like a decade old that go and transmit yeah. events indicating where the bus's real-time position is, how many people boarded, how many people left. And all this data has to be really accurate because it's used by city planners for going and adjusting how their bus routes are working and everything else. And these guys recently just developed a um, – are the ones who basically really got Akka running on Xamarin Android. They're working on some sort of new tracking system using that. Oh. So – that's a pretty interesting case. Uh, so we've got a video of them up on our YouTube channel talking about some of that. Um, and then the I've seen actually quite a few of those sort of like vehicle tracking ones. We've had some people who've built applications that track shipping containers that are all over the world. So these things have these RFID tags on them that mm. get scanned at each port of entry. And this system keeps track of where they are and where their last known heading is and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, lots of IoT scenarios, too, now that I think about it. We have a bunch of companies that work in energy that use Akka.net for collecting smart meter data, coming back from all the different little meters that these electric companies have uh, deployed out their you know customers' homes and offices, that sort of thing. Yeah. And they use they use the Akka.net in this case for collecting all the meter events, for producing, you know, bills. Uh, sometimes determining if there's, you know, if they need to go ahead and maybe send a technician out there, that sort of thing. It makes perfect um, sense to use the actor model for IoT because you can map them, you know, the actors directly to these devices and, you know, keep persistent connections if you wish. And I mean, there's just, it just fits. Yeah, absolutely. It does. You can just assign one actor or maybe one like little mini hierarchy of actors for yeah. each device out there and they can just react as needed. We, I don't know if these folks went into production, but we were talking a little while back to some people who are working in oil 
uh, here in the United States who wanted to use Aka.net to basically perform a type of safety monitoring for their pipeline. So they have a stretch of pipeline they own mm. and they have sensors planted. I don't know how far apart they are, but basically let's go ahead and say every N feet worth of track. Yeah. And these sensors have to go and detect the volume, pressure, temperature. And if there's a sudden change in that they don't expect, it might mean there's a problem with the pipeline and they have to deploy technicians up for doing that. Right. So these folks were discussing building a proof of concept using Aka.net to go ahead and, and basically in real time produce the notifications for their maintenance crews to go out there. Just the fact uh, that you're using modern security is a huge advantage in oil pipeline technology. They're using SCADA systems now and, there was one uh, pipeline in, I think it was Siberia, wasn't it, Richard, that was uh, attacked uh, basically because the systems were so insecure and, uh, you know, they reported opposite pressures, basically. At one end of the pipeline, when the pressure was high, it reported it was low, and the other end of the reported it was low when it was high, and then, uh, you know, hilarity ensued. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, it exploded. Yeah. Yep. But uh, yeah, I, I did a fair bit of research and work in pre-work anyway into an IoT oil uh, pipeline system, and that perfect makes perfect sense. Yeah, so there's a lot of those IoT use cases uh, that people are looking at, and then the other big area where we've had a lot of adoption has been in finance. Um, so. Hmm. Apparently, online gambling in Europe and South Africa loves Aka.net. Nice. <laughs> um, so, so we've probably had at this rate, in terms of people I've personally talked to, at least a dozen different companies wow. that use Aka.net for doing two types of work in the in the online gaming space. Uh, one is uh, calculating the odds based on how people are betting. So this is kind of like a dynamic pricing problem. So right. super time if, sensitive if, too. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's so time sensitive. If you screw up on that, or if you have to use batch processing, you lose, you basically your company will be bankrupt within a matter of like months right. doing that. Gam gamblers so, look for bad odds calculations. I mean, yeah. the simplest place to look at this is horse racing, right? Where literally you're looking at an exactor pool as money is added to it in bets, the odds change. Yeah, absolutely right. That's so they, that's, that's one really big category of type of like real, so I will call it a soft real time problem that these right. companies have to solve. The other one, which is interesting, is how do you calculate the original odds for the game before you allow people to bet on it? And that requires, so there's a couple of companies that specialize in this. You basically have to run like 10,000 Monte Carlo simulations for how a game, what will be, what's the default outcome of the game essentially. And they have to recalculate those odds if something happens, like let's say a star player gets injured or benched a week before the right. game starts. Well, the, the market might correct itself pretty quickly in some cases, but in others, they might have to go ahead and rerun all the odds calculation on that. And that requires massive amounts of parallelism in order to do it quickly. So that's another area where we've had folks who are kicking the tires on Aka.net and looking at using it for that. And there's a bunch who are in production with it now, too. That's cool. Uh, yeah. But yeah. It, it just, you know, I, not, not that I'm a huge advocate of gambling because, you know, I can do math, but <laughs> there are interesting computing problems. The house wins, kids. If you haven't figured it out by now, you don't deserve to have your money. That's right. It's a tax on those who can't do math.
<laughs> <laughs> well, the, the only way to really uh, win big in gambling is you got to be the person who does that crazy place bet like a year in advance. Like the um, guy who predicted that the first play of, I'm trying to remember what Super Bowl it was. It was Broncos versus Seahawks. The first play would be a, um, uh, what's it called? A safety. And so he placed like a $10 bet for that, like a year before the game actually happened. I think he won $50,000 back from that. <laughs> right. So you got to, you got to rely on lottery luck. winnings, right? At that point, you just, <laughs> there's no skill there. You just yeah. came up with the goofiest thing you could think of and threw 10 bucks at it. It's like, I could have bought a latte from Starbucks, but how about this instead? It's a little more entertaining. <laughs> if, yeah. <laughs> And nobody remembers the, all the other $10 bets that ne- came to nothing. Well, hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. I must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to deliver the daily joke using UDP. Here we go. Why did the road chicken the cross? Side <laughs> other get the. <laughs> all right. Network jokes are funny. I just want to say that for the record. <laughs> Here's another one. Knock, knock. Who's there? UDP. UDP who? <laughs> That's the joke. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you didn't get right. the punchline. We're easily amused. That's what we know. <laughs> <laughs> Poor UDP. I know. <laughs> Gets no respect. Uh. Yeah. All right. Well, it's actually time to give away a Sync Fusion Essential Studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, with over 650 controls, Sync Fusion's Essential Studio is the most comprehensive suite of components available for .NET and JavaScript with world-class diagrams, maps, and charts. Reduce your development time, save some money, and get the best support in the industry. These are just a few of the reasons over 800,000 people make Sync Fusion a part of their daily dev process. And now individual developers and small teams can get access to every single control in Sync Fusion's library for free. The community license also gives you access to Sync Fusion's growing library of enterprise applications like dashboard platform and big data platform that can help make sense of complex data. Support and updates are included, too. It's a $10,000 value for free. Find out more and get started today at SyncFusion.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Matthew A. Snyder. Congratulations, Matthew. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for you, Matthew. And Matthew just won that SyncFusion Essential Studio. Big pile of awesome from them. If you don't know what we just did here, go to .netrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. All right. It's time for you, Aaron, to tell us what you would buy with $5,000. What would I buy with $5,000? Yeah. You know, I would go ahead and get a bunch of Raspberry Pis and the cheapest set of like SSDs I could and try to create my own like grid computer I could just take with me somewhere. I'd I'd go ahead and do that. I love that. 
Could be a grid computer. Could be a bomb. <laughs> Trying to get that out of the Let's plane. see what the TSA thinks. Hey, <laughs> kid who's, who, whose IQ couldn't actually light a fire. What do you think this is? It has blinky lights. It must be a bomb. <laughs> Not that I'm bitter or have any experience with this. That'd be a great YouTube game, you know, where you just try to determine whether the TSA thinks it's a it's a grid computer or a bomb. Computer or bomb? <laughs> computer or bomb? What do you think? Look at this guy. Look at how he's looking at that thing. What do you think his assessment is? Uh, he's got shifty eyes. So I don't trust him. <laughs> it's a bomb! Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too much. Not that I have any experience with this. Nope. Never never had that problem. Never. Not once. Yeah, that's right. You used to carry those little computers in your bag. Yeah. And you that's called that bag secondary inspection, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I learned a very important lesson that I would pass along to all of the listeners, which is when a TSA-type person or some kind of border guard wants to look in your bag, be really excited to show them what's in the bag. <laughs> Have two or three-minute stories about each item in the bag. Because somewhere around the second item, that person's going to look at you and say, you need to get away from me. <laughs> Ask me how I know. Too much fun. Yeah, well, it's like, you know, man man manipulating pseudo-authority figures for fun and profit. So you like the whole idea of getting a grid computing thing going. I mean, have you you must have done testing, you know, with Akka.net somewhere along the line where you've, you know, just spun up bazillions of actors and tried to get things to, you know, fail, push the limits of hardware and software. Have you done that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of, you know, trying to just really push the limits of it, the very first time I really used Akka.net as an end user was inside MarkedUp's uh, marketing automation system. And we dealt with pretty insane traffic loads there. Um, you know, just to give you an example, about 500 megs of event data per second coming through our load balancer. These are, oh, this is like the, the calls coming into our web API, that wow. sort of thing. Um, and we all that ended up getting funneled into an actor system. And so I think I, I was able to actually get a lot done with only two sort of real computers doing any of the work there, where I had maybe half a million to a million actors running on each of those, uh, doing all the doing all the actual processing mm -hmm. itself. Uh, in terms of the largest cluster I've spun up, you know, we have some of our unit tests and this multi-node testing. They get a cluster that's maybe like 15, 16 nodes in size. But the biggest I've done with an actual, you know, network itself was I think around 30 or 40 actual machines that link, linked together. And that was when I sort of topped out in the amount of stuff I could deploy in one go with AWS back in the day. Um, what I've been working on lately in terms of stress testing Akka.net and also the network layer underneath it is we've started uh, using Docker inside our continuous integration process. And I'm working on some work now to go ahead and try to spin up, essentially uh, use Docker links and networks to try to spin up an Akka.net cluster on just a handful of physical VMs, yeah. but make them make them really dense with a lot of small Docker containers running on them. I'm so, sorry, did you say physical VMs, really? <laughs> well, not physical VMs. You know what I mean. Um, the, 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 the whatever, whatever unit of compute Azure deems fit to grant me. Right. Um, <laughs> so, so I've been working a lot with that lately, and I think that'll be a little bit easier to do some real stress testing from a network standpoint. Um, just cause I, it's, it's 
slow, man, spinning up tons of virtual machines. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas if I can go ahead and, you know, let's say I go ahead and pre-allocate 10 VMs, I can probably deploy 30 or 40 Docker containers on each of those, assuming that they're not using very much uh, disk or memory. And most of these applications probably wouldn't be right out of the gate. And yeah. you can get a lot more server density that way. And that'd be how I'd probably want to try to stress test things, like just how big can an Akka.net uh, network get. Mm. On the JVM, they spun up, I think, a 2600 node Akka.net cluster in Google Compute Ooh. Engine. Um, mm. that was, a, that's a pretty decent sized one. Um, and, you know, I really just haven't had a case where Akka.net is really being pushed so hard where I need to spin up that much hardware in order to do it. Um, it's pretty overall in the grand scheme of things, pretty efficient. At some point, this just becomes a networking problem, right? Or how do I distribute this load effectively across this many nodes? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. So that deals with the concept of partitioning your data and also mm -hmm. partitioning your work too. So when you're designing like an Akka.net cluster, when you're working over the network, you've got to have a strategy for how you want to distribute. So we, we tend to have people break up their work into two different types of services, stateless and stateful. Uh, so stateless services will do things that are resource intensive, but easily retriable. A good example, sending emails over SMTP have, might have a service right. that does that. Uh, sending push notifications, another example. We've even had people who run like render farms for like full length Hollywood movies. Um, wow. And have had, and that, that, that's like a really good example of stateless work. It can be retried. And but it is extremely resource expensive to do all that. Right. Uh, but order is not relevant. You know what frame you're working on. Like you could you can you, you don't have a lot of dependencies between each unit of work. But you yeah, do have exactly. to recombine um, all the work together uh, in, you know, back at the source. And that's where the stateful nodes come in is there. Right. If you have a big work sort of farm like that, you tend to have one stateful node responsible for keeping track of all the operations that it's assigned to the rest of the network. And it will retry ones that it thinks should have been finished on time. And what you want to do, if you have a single actor inside this network of, let's say a thousand Akka.net processes, so one actor in one process out of, out of a possible network that might contain, you know, hundreds of millions of actors potentially. How do you make sure work arrives to that one actor? And the answer is inside Akadot cluster, we have a, well, actually inside Akadot.net in general, we have these special built in actors called routers. And all they do is execute different types of message distribution techniques. So you might have mm -hmm. a, a round robin router, a broadcast router, a random router. But the one that you use for distributing state is called a consistent hashing router. Mm -hmm. And this is a technique that folks have used for a couple decades for building things like hashing systems and so forth, where you basically make sure that every single node that has a copy of that router running on it has a hash table that has the same contents as everyone else. Yeah. And so all the messages that fall in a certain range of the hash and the, you have, you have to extract a hash key from the message. Uh, will always be routed to the same machine on the network. And then from there, once that message arrives, it becomes pretty easy to figure out which actor to route it to. There's a couple of different patterns that you can use for doing that. Uh, but that's how you sort of guarantee that your state can be partitioned evenly because consistent hash routers tend to distribute their state evenly across a cluster. And that's also how you make sure that all events, no matter what their origin is, like in terms of who produces it, always end up being sort of a, a captured in the same place in the network use a technique like that mm. 
Yeah. Yeah. We have a blog post that uh, I did pretty pretty recently, I guess a couple of weeks ago, talking about how the math actually works behind that technique. Um, since I find myself explaining it a lot <laughs> inside yeah. our Gitter chat. Uh, and it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. So, te- so systems like Memcached, Cassandra, and others have used it for a long time now to go and distribute state evenly in those caching and database systems, respectively. Are there any um, systems out there that are taking on Akka.net as a dependency? Um, I've seen some frameworks people have built on top of it for doing some things like there's a couple, a couple of them are really just add-ons to Akka.net. There's a South Korean company that's come up with a typed sort of interface for Akka.net actors. Hmm. Um, but in terms of actually using Akka.net under the hood as a component for some sort of higher level framework, um, I'm, I'm not aware of any off the top of my head. On you know on the JVM Apache Spark takes Akka as a dependency under the hood, oh, and there's cool. a number of other sort of big uh, JVM da- you know big data technologies on the JVM that do that too. There's another one whose name escapes me at the moment, but 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 Spark's the big one. So yeah. it's definitely possible to do that, and I uh, I think at some point in the future you'll probably see me or someone else release like a data processing tool that uses Akka under the hood. That's that'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're very interesting stuff. What else? Uh, what else is on your to-do list in terms of features, or maybe the most requested feature? Oh man, uh, our feature list grows longer every day. <laughs> um, so there's a couple of really big ones we're working on right now. Uh, the thing I've been spending some time on this week is certifying Akka.net on Mono. Is a big oh. one that I've been working on. Cool. Uh, cool. That's that's mainly to placate our users who largely are IoT users who want to use Linux for their primary runtime environment. Mm-hmm. And that's lot, largely a cost consideration for them, I think. Uh, so we're trying to get uh, Akka.net certified on that. And that means running our entire build chain, which takes about two hours end to end to run on it. We, we run an enormous number of tests. We have, I think, 32 or 3,300 unit tests plus about 130 or 120 of those distributed unit tests. And each one of those takes a while. And then we also have a giant suite of performance tests that run after that. And we actually hmm. parallelize those. So the total build time, it actually only ends up taking about 45 minutes, but still it's a lot of work. Hmm. Um, so we're working on that. .NET Core support is a huge uh, request right now too. Yeah, it's just, it's yeah. more of the same. People want to get off of Windows yep. and they want to be able to use Docker. So we have a lot of uh, people who are sort of in the early adopter group that yeah. really are pushing for that. And they're also contributing to it too. So they're, they're actually putting in some effort to try to get Akka.net up and running on there. In terms of actual end user features, like new additions to Akka.net, we have a few that we're working on uh, in parallel right now. Uh, Akka.persistence, which is the built-in event sourcing system inside Akka.net. This allows any actor to go ahead and deliberately choose to persist uh, certain events of interest to a journal. And you explicitly say when you want to do that. And then that actor, if it gets killed or restarted somewhere, can go ahead and recover those events from the underlying data store. So we support, I think, a dozen different databases at least for that. So all the SQL databases, uh, event stores, Cassandra, MongoDB, Azure Table Storage, a whole bunch of them. Wow. That's still in in beta right now, and we're working on getting that. That's the next big thing that's been in beta for a long time that we're working on getting out of it. So we're going to try to have that out of beta uh, sometime this uh, this fall, I think the 
Big thing we're waiting for that is we're also going to be changing around our default serializer in Akka.net. Uh, we, Roger, the other founder of the Akka.net project, invented a new serializer called Wire is the name of it. And you might have seen it on the C Sharp or .NET Reddits this week. It was trending at the top of those a little bit earlier. Wire is blazingly fast. It's uh, last time Roger benchmarked it against JSON.NET, as far as I know, it was about 25 times faster than it. Wow. And wow. It's, it's designed to solve a couple of really painful problems Akka.NET users have had over the past couple of years, particularly our F Sharp users. Um, what we're working on doing there is basically trying to make sure that things like discriminated unions and F sharp can be serialized and deserialized over the network correctly. Well, there's also certain types of collections that Akka, that some of the higher level Akka.net modules depend on, like immutable collections, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, that don't serialize very well by default. So we have to use what's known as a surrogation strategy for that, where you basically have a surrogate type that sort of is like a data transfer object. You serialize the immutable collection to that, then you deserialize it as that sort of DTO again on the other end, then turn it back in to a immutable dictionary or immutable hash set or whatever. Nice. So yeah. we're kind of waiting on wire to sort of uh, get wrapped up before we uh, move Akadot Persistence out of beta because Akadot Persistence will take a dependency on that. Yeah, So that's one thing that we're waiting on. And then we have a couple more really high-level modules for doing high availability computing. Uh, so we have cluster sharding is one module that we're working on. This is a way of essentially using that consistent hashing strategy, yep. uh, but combined with a bit more intelligence for doing things like partition handoffs, which is what happens when you bring a new node into the hash table. So cluster sharding has some tools for dealing with that and doing balancing of shards across the network and being able to memorize where each shard was relatively speaking. Yeah. So that's, that's another module that's sort of in beta still that depends on Akadot persistence. And then we also have uh, a cluster tools module that includes some things like distributed pub sub, which is essentially a decentralized message broker built on top of Akadot Sweet. And there's also another module that we haven't even released an alpha of yet called uh, Distributed Data, which is essentially a way of doing um, eventually consistent, like replicated uh, actor state in Akka.net. It uses essentially kind of like a, an in-memory key value store uh, mm-hmm. for doing all of that. And mm-hmm. it uses a technique called a CRDT, Commutative Replicated Data Type where you can basically have like lots of different permutations of the same logical entity in three different places of the cluster. And they'll, they'll all be merged together correctly into a consistent value eventually without using any sort of consensus algorithm or distributed lock or anything like that. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, got a lot of stuff. (laughs) Hey, Aaron, I'm just trying to rationalize the ACA dot cluster uh, tooling around containers as well. Cause obviously you have support for Docker and lots of people interested in Docker, but I often look at, and I'm putting on my IT hat here. One of the things I like about Docker is I can build swarms, right? I can get a collection of, of uh, containers working together for reliability and so forth. And it seems like ACA cluster does a lot of this. Are these two things mutually exclusive? Uh, no, not at all. We've had people using Apache Mesos with Docker and Akka.net um, over the past year or so. Mm-hmm. And really, these technologies are much more complementary. So what Docker Swarm really does, it provides the infrastructure that an Akka.net cluster network would need to run. 
What Akadot Cluster is really doing is providing the application layer logic to give one node in your distributed application visibility into all of the others that are on the network. Right. So if you, let's say you need to go ahead and uh, upgrade uh, one of the services in your Akka.net cluster using Docker Swarm or Apache Mesos or Kubernetes or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, if you go ahead and basically take down some Docker containers and reboot them, the Akadot cluster uh, sort of you know, a gossip protocol will recognize, oh, these nodes are unreachable. And, oh, look, they've restart. They've come back on the same you know, IP and port that they had before, but they have a different UID. That's a, a little long integer that Akadot generates. And we use that for keeping track of restarts is what that's for. Oh, this must be a new instance of this node. Okay, well, we'll go ahead and mark all the actors that uh, people were talking to in the old instance of that node before it restarted is dead. And then those actors can go ahead and restart uh, you know, the, the communication with this node as though it's a brand new member we haven't seen before. So mm -hmm. Akadot Cluster really provides that sort of stuff. So to do an upgrade then, you basically create a new container template with the updated version of the software that's in an Akka Cluster, stand it up, and the gossip protocol picks up the fact that, hey, there's a new stuff, there's new stuff here and just migrates the workload and kills off the old ones over time. Well, you have to kill off the old ones. But yes, what Akka.net will do is it'll say, oh, hey, look, um, there's a new node that wants to join. Great. We'll bring it into the cluster with us. Right. And so it's kind of like a peer to peer network on the server is really what it is. Mm -hmm. mm. All right. Well, that makes sense to me then that, yep. that it's a, it's the Akka cluster that actually understands the software well enough to acknowledge that's a new version. That's what we should be using. Yep. Aaron, is there anything else that you want to mention before we uh, sign off here? Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about a little bit before we sign off is, uh, you know, we're starting to do some more content around this, but uh, NBench, the performance testing library that we use to try to uh, ship Akka.net 1.1 and some of the earlier updates has been really instrumental in, in improving the performance of our software across the board since we started using it. So wow, it's great. basically a little library that kind of feels like writing a unit test but for the performance of your application so you can essentially write an assertion for things like this module must be able to execute you know 10 million operations per second uh in order for this test to pass things yeah. like that so that's been really instrumental and uh, you can find out about that by going to github.com slash pettibridge slash nbench awesome aaron standard thank you for joining us this hour it's been great thank you gentlemen really appreciate it all right and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.